Hey team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Drinkon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to give back and support the Eternal Optimist community, go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. Thomas, I'm excited to have you on the show and I'd love to just dive right on in. What's the hardest thing starting from in this moment to all the way back in your childhood, what's the hardest thing that you've overcome or endured in your life, Thomas? I would say it's recovering from a failure, from a business failure. (sighs) Okay. I would say that journey back for me took me eight years to come back. Wow. Took me eight years to get through the, uh, I would say initially the loss of identity, the loss of community, the loss of support. So yeah, I mean, from 2012 to 2020, those were my eight years, you can call them the comeback years, you can call them the eight years in the wilderness, you can call them eight years of pain, you can call them eight years of sadness or depression. But those eight years, that was my 40 days, if you like, if you want to compare the stories or the metaphors. But it's a long way back when you lose your identity. And Penny and I had this community. We had 650,000 members. Members pay $10 a month. And we built that from 1998 to 2012. And we were smashed to pieces then by the free Facebook and the free LinkedIn. And having a community of that size, 650,000 members is a lot to build without venture capital than to have your life ripped out of you because it was like losing a child. Effectively, you go into grief. I quite like now calling them the comeback years because you've prompted me to even say that. I've never thought of them like that. So, Matt, you've already helped me out by dragging that out of me. But that's the answer to your question, the recovery from the failure and coming back. Coming back was very, very hard. I want to honor you for coming up with that, the comeback years. And those were the challenging years. And I think it's important that you shared it because some people look at those who are influential, who are successful, who have a large following, and they think, man, it's super easy for them. They got it all figured out. They're wealthier. They're better looking or they're healthier. They just know people. They got all these advantages. And even those who build a community of 650,000 followers struggle with the same stuff the rest of us struggle. You may not know about all the struggles. So that's why I ask is to show others that there is hope and that they can do it too. That if Thomas Power, this man who has built an empire, uh, had it ripped away, if he can do it and come back from it to where he is today, then there's hope for all of us. So I honor you for sharing that. Yeah, I think so. I do think the way this game is designed, the way life is designed, it's designed in a way to really challenge you and to force you into failure. And it might be in business, it might be in relationships, it might be with family, it might be with children. But the way the cards are laid out or dealt to each of us by whatever force is dealing the cards, 
be that God or an entity or some kind of energy, but everyone is dealt some kind of force, energy, system, deck to play. And depending on where you're born, obviously different resources, if you're born in the middle of Africa to the middle of Ukraine to North Carolina to the southeast of England, you have different resources wrapped around your card game. But whatever set of cards you're dealt, you are going to hit big obstacles. And often I think it's almost like the obstacle is the path. You can't break through the path without the obstacle, and you have to choose the path of obstacles to break through. Absolutely. I'm 59. Most people know that life is not a walk in the park, and they probably know that depending on their childhood or their education years or their early career years or or some event in their career. But the real challenge is getting up and coming back and doing it again and working your way back. And you might face health issues. I've been through bowel cancer and chemo. Our daughter was kidnapped and raped in 2016. So events happen that really challenge your life. And however smooth sailing or plain sailing it might look to someone, when you lay out the decades that you live through, you're going to hit some big obstacles and they're not easy to pass through or surmount or go round. And so I'm, I'm intrigued as to why life is played to us in this form. Then we kind of have this vision that when we die, we might go to this better place or this heaven or this hell. Or we have all these metaphors for what holds beyond this place might be better or different. Some people think we're just gone, suggesting if we're going to heaven that we live in hell already. I would say business is challenging, life is challenging, but at the same time, it's also incredibly good fun to play the game. Absolutely. And you don't get the chance to have that fun if you don't at least try to play the game. Yeah, and it's hard. I mean, I'm viscerally feeling over here the idea of my kidnapped and raped. That brings up a whole different set of emotions that I've never experienced. And God willing, I hope I don't experience at the same time. I hope you don't too. That itself feels incredibly challenging. And the business is challenging. So all of these challenges together, I suppose I would ask this, Thomas, you called the comeback years. It was the challenging time for you. What inspiration do you draw from or how do you start to frame these years as you go into them in 2012 when the business collapses? What was on your mind in those days, weeks when things started to crumble? Yeah, it's after 14 years, it's a very, obviously it's a very sad time, but you want the pain to end in the same way, if you've been with people as they've died, I've been with half a dozen people holding their hands as they've died and with various different experiences. But when you know it's time for someone to leave, it's good to be with them as they go out the door, as it were, as their spirit departs the physical. I think it's obviously a great moment of grief and sadness because a company dying is very similar to a person dying. Very, very similar. You want the pain to end, you want the life to end, but you don't know what's beyond it in the same way as you trying to recover from losing your father at 28. I lost my father at 25. It's a long way back from that recovery. You think about them every day, as I do, even this length of time. And we all lose a lot of people in our lives. I would say back in 2012, I wanted the pain to end so I could be free, but I didn't realize that freedom was eight years of pain. Mm. Well, I would ask you a question that an eternal optimist might think and no idea how you might respond. I'm open to any way you might respond. Uh, I'd say, what is the good that has come from these past eight years, the comeback years? What's the silver lining or the positive in the challenge? Well, the positive is my daughter's managed to fully recover and come back and build a company after that experience. So that's incredible, incredible achievement by her. 
I would say getting through bowel cancer and chemo in 2018 allowed me to uh, give up alcohol and say goodbye to alcohol forever. So that's incredibly positive. And getting that time for eight years of internal analysis of yourself and your profile to decide what it is you really want to do next. And during those eight years, I sat on lots of different boards as a board member. So I was able to observe many other executives in action in companies making decisions and receive their mentorship and give my experience to these different companies. I've sat on 15 boards, which I wouldn't have otherwise probably sat on if I'd been successful with the other organization. So I wouldn't have had that experience. And I became attractive through failure. That was quite interesting, that you become more interesting as a board member when you failed than when you've succeeded. So that's pretty interesting because executives do like people who know how to turn a bad situation into good. And then really at the end of that eight years, being able to start another community again, another business model again, and spend the last three years building that during COVID. And then to build it during COVID, build a new community of the bottom of the market, as it were, where none of us knew what COVID was or how long it was going to last, is incredibly rewarding. I've had three joyful years coming back from those eight But those eight were not pure pain. They were just a journey of self-discovery. I don't want to play a melancholy old song saying, oh, woe is me. Those eight years toughened me up. That's a great perspective, Thomas. I I love it. I never painted you as the victim or I don't intend to paint it as a melancholy time. You call it the comeback years. It is a great journey of self-discovery. It's filled with pain and self-discovery at the same time. Yeah, it is. And I think most of life is the battle with your own mind. I think that's a battle for everyone. I mean, if you look at Robin Williams, who was at the top of his game when he decided to leave us, that was a battle in his mind that you can be the best in the world, or in his case, the funniest in the world, and then still choose to depart. Being at the top of your game is not necessarily the top. It's the top of a game, being a movie star, being an actor, being a comedian. But even that level of success caused him so much pain, he chose to leave us. The top is not the top, and the bottom is not the bottom. There's another place, there's another space that I think you can only discover when you're forced to discover that place. Yes. I don't know how to label that place, though, Matt. Yeah, if we were to try to label that place, the place that you can only access once you've been into the pit or you've been through the challenge or the hard stuff, it gives you access. You've got to be at the bottom. You've got to get to the top, but you can't get to this middle space, whatever it's called, until you've been both at the bottom and at the top, which I've been to both places. Mm. That might fuel the self-discovery is that now you've seen things from all the angles or from multiple different perspectives. And if you choose to be a person who asks questions and is curious and has self-discovery on the mind, then you can make it the comeback year and on the other side of it, find three years of joy on this journey. I'm curious about these last three years. What joy did you find or have you found in these last three years on the comeback from the pain? The joy is that you can do it again. You can do it again. And so you might want to label, in my case, those eight years, you might want to label those as R&D years. Okay, good frame. Okay. They're pain years, they're comeback years, they're R&D years, but you get to analyze every single thing you did wrong before. So you can make a list of those to avoid doing those again. What's quite remarkable is whilst this community that we've built in the last three years is just 100 members as opposed to 650,000 members, 
many of the people from the 650,000 have come back. They've come back into our lives. So they didn't go away. They were just waiting for us to go again. That created great joy in Penny's life and my life that we didn't lose them after all. They were still there. They were just waiting for another vessel, another boat, another ship, another train to climb aboard, which they have now done. I didn't expect them to be there, and they are there, even though we'd been effectively not invisible, but relatively speaking, invisible for eight years. Well, now that we're here, I'm curious, what does this mean to you? Why is this important to you, this new community and this new mission that you're on? Please share a little bit about that with us. Look, there's so many different reasons for that, Matt. One is that what we were wiped out by, by Facebook and LinkedIn, wasn't good enough to hold the attention of people for very long. And that they're useful utilities, but their ability to hold on to someone's attention or relationship doesn't last long at Facebook and doesn't last long at LinkedIn. Not to say they're not very useful, they are, but they don't hold people for long. So the intimate community model, which is what Penny and I believe in, very deep, intimate relationships with people over long periods of time, we believe that income follows intimacy. That's our main belief. And that building intimate communities, small intimate groups of 100 people is the right way forward, which is very different to what happens at LinkedIn and Facebook. So one of the joys is knowing that the models funded primarily by venture capital and advertising don't actually work in the long term. That's very reassuring for me to know that. I needed to know that. And now I know that. They work while they work, but they don't work forever. The other thing is obviously having 100 new relationships with people in North America, in Canada, in Europe, Australia, and having these 100 relationships again back in our lives, creating this community of trust, this community of belief, this intimate place, having all these calls each month on Zoom, educating people, introducing them to people, supporting people, having lunch and dinner every month with them. It gives you great joy to be around these people. That joy of being around them has lifted my spirit, has lifted my health, has lifted my sense of happiness. Well, considering how low I got in those comeback years, I didn't think it was possible to come back to this place back then, and it is. So I want to give that message to those in business, but I also want to give that message to my uh, three children, that whatever happens, whatever happens, you can come back. Amen. I believe what you're sharing, because I happen to be a part of a small intimate group called the Front Row Dads here in the United States. And now we've actually gone international, but there is a VIP group. And we call it VIP just because I've been there a long time. And these are some of the, the first people that were there. It's such a great place to pour into people that have this similar beliefs that want to be great dads, great husbands, just show up for their families. That's the particular community I'm a part of. It's very affirming and it's nurturing and it fills my cup. What size is that community, Matt? Well, the community I'm referring to is the one that's been here for a few years inside the Front Row Dads. Family men with businesses. Family men with business. What, and what size? How many members? Right now, I believe there are... Paying members, probably 500-ish, I would guess. I don't know for sure. Wow. Uh, and there's and it's in Charlotte, is it? It's based in the United States is where the founder, John Roman, lives. And he lives in Austin, Texas, right in the middle of the United States, in the south middle part of the United States. So he's been here running this and building it up for the last eight years. There's an inner circle of about 100. And the overall group is about 500 or so. We're all committed to this purpose. 
and it gives us all this energy to show up and, and work on being better better dads and better humans. Beautiful. So that's our place. And it caused me to come back and ask you, what is the purpose of your intimate community? Why is that important for you and important for the world, Thomas? There's many different answers for that. What happened with COVID was it made people very isolated and very lonely. That's an emotional issue. So people lost connection. They lost identity. They lost significance. They lost themselves. Now, that's on the emotional side, the personal side. But also, they lost business. They lost clients. They lost suppliers. They lost friends. They actually lost them in real life. There was a commercial loss, financial monetary loss, which is painful. There was an emotional, physical, mental loss for different people around the world. And building this community of 100, we were trying to fix that so that you have an intimate community of support and connection and identity and significance on one side. And at the same time, you had a private marketplace where you could do your commercials, find deals, find suppliers, find clients, find capital, whatever it is you're looking for on the financial side. So you had a mixture of kind of making love and making money. (laughs) Excellent. Great analogy. Ready to satisfy the loss that we were feeling ourselves from COVID But we were still missing our giant community ourselves. Even after eight years, we're still missing it desperately and not able to find it on LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or any one of these so-called platforms. So we thought we need to rebuild it. Now what's interesting, having built this 100, is we're being asked to build these groups of 100 all over the world. And we haven't made a decision whether to do that or not. But people are asking us to say, can you take this formula, this recipe, and plant it in different places around the world. Because the big learning is groups can't be bigger than 100. There's a lot of talk about the science of networks. I'm very interested in the science of networks, the data inside networks, the maths inside networks. But when you have a community of 100, if you're going to get to know 100 people, if if you meet two a week, it's going to take you a year to get to know 100 people. And I mean, get to know them intimately, spend a few hours with them, not just a 10 or 15 minute sales call. The interesting thing is the people who've done that, like Craig, who recommended you to me, out of the 100, people find their favorite 30, and they get close to 30, but they get very intimate with six, who they refer to as their legends, the six legends. So you've got 130 and six. And interestingly enough, in the military, a platoon is typically 30, and three platoons make a company, which is typically 100. And in every company, in every platoon, you have a top six who run these organizations. That's always been the case in the military. We're finding all of those historical military numbers, which are thousands of years old, apply to small intimate groups, which are both intimate and commercial. A lot of communities have got very big online, and big doesn't work. What we're now realizing is you want millions of small intimate groups. So effectively, you want to implement a big, small strategy. You've got to have lots and lots of small. And this is a fascinating discovery for us over the last three years, which there was a clue in the 650,000 members before because it was 5,000 clubs of 130 people each. So the clue was there. We saw the data, but we didn't receive the knowledge. We had to go away for eight years to receive that knowledge again. So that's why I often refer to the comeback years as the R&D years. Sometimes you can't hear something for a decade after you've been told it. Now, for someone who has built that community of 650,000 or 
5,000 smaller groups who's built that before, who's done the research and let the wisdom, the knowledge start to really be understood. You're in a place now where you're deciding or considering, do we scale this to the world? Do I scale this to the world? Or does someone scale this to the world? So from someone who's experienced success in such a grand scale to now, it feels like your success is feeling intimate with this smaller group. Does it even give you any energy to think about scaling it to the world? Or are you satisfied now with where we are? I'm curious about this at the age of 59, where you've experienced success at a high level. Is the growth and scale to the world, does that still give you the same energy that it may have in the past? Good. Good. You're very good at this, Matt. You're very good at this. Um, It's kind of, the answer to your question is kind of both. We're getting a lot of satisfaction out of the hundred, an awful lot. Commercially, it's a success. Financially, is it's a success. Uh, we have a team of seven that run that group. And emotionally, it's extremely satisfying as well. Mentally, uh, it's, it's deep, deep friendships. Deep, deep friendships have formed, and it's working for the members. It's working for us. When people say, what about the New York Bit 100 and the Chicago Bit 100 and the San Francisco Bit 100 and the Singapore Bit 100 and the Sydney Bit 100, people are asking us about this. And because we've done it before, you can't help being tempted to consider doing it again. Yes. So how persuasive or how big is that pull? And the reason I ask is because I feel that there are a number of people listening to the show of entrepreneurs who've had some level of success who sometimes ask the question, do I ever turn this off, this drive to earn, to achieve, to impact, to influence, or is there a time when I'm satisfied with where I'm at? I don't know if that's a frame that connects with you or not. I'm curious how you might respond. I I really don't know the answer to that question. That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that question. I really don't know. What I would say is the thing that's thrown us off is we've been contacted by a lot of big corporations, big giant corporations, big tech corporations who've asked us how we've built this community of 100 as a paying business model. And could we recreate it for them as their top 100 dealers, top 100 resellers, top 100 suppliers, top 100 this, top 100 that? They've asked us, we've been asked that many times. So that's intrigued us. The other thing that we've been asked by big corporations as well is how do they tap into these 100 minds that we've collected into this group? How do they tap into them easily? So almost like a a procurement hub or a supplier network. We weren't expecting either of these conversations because we were just focused on building the 100. We weren't sort of going out there and marketing and say, hey, come and access our 100 or license this 100. We weren't doing any of that. But those conversations have started anyway. So you have this dilemma where you've got a number of different things. Could you recreate one of these for our company over here, a top 100 something or other? How do we tap into this 100 so that we can use it a little bit like ChatGPT? Can I just ask it questions and get answers? You know, have the human version of ChatGPT, BitGPT, for want of a name. And then the third thing is, can we license this and create the New York version, the Chicago version, the San Francisco version? So you've got three different opportunities have emerged, which we never even considered. The only one we considered was geography. The other two from the corporations, we never considered. And so you think, well, what's the commercial angle here? Because why don't corporations just do it on their own? 
the reason why they struggle to do it is obviously corporations are focused on transactions, deal flow, sales, revenue, market cap, the share price, return on capital employed. They're driven by numbers. The market wants intimacy and connection, not numbers. But the capital markets want numbers. But people want intimacy and connection. So you've got this challenge between transaction-focused businesses that are focused on share price and market cap and earnings and quarterly numbers in a market desperate for connection, intimacy, dare I say, love. And this is why we believe that income follows intimacy. The longer you're intimate with somebody, the more likely positive things occur, whether that's through family or through business. But that's not how we measure business, because we only measure business in terms of numbers. Everyone looks for numbers. Show me the numbers. Give me the data. What are the numbers? Humans' desire, highlighted and escalated by COVID, is give me contribution, significance, recognition, intimacy. Show me you can see me, which has nothing to do with numbers. It's to do with identity, it's our purpose. So you've got this dilemma of the battle of numbers versus the battle of emotions. And as humans, we want both. We want our numbers, but we want our emotions satisfied as well. And so we're in the middle of that conversation trying to figure out what choices do we make. And it's difficult to make these decisions because there are many choices and corporations have strength and power and capital and can put pressure on you. And of course, the members themselves are our biggest priority. What do they want? You know, they want a combination of personal growth and personal development and all of their emotions satisfied and also a very successful private marketplace. So they want numbers and emotions as well. And so this is one of the uh, issues that we're grappling with about how to deal with this, how to make these choices. So that's when you talked about your front row dads. I'm very interested to see that the world is now breaking up into millions and millions of small intimate groups. But those small intimate groups need business models. What we may have discovered is the small intimate group business model. And we may have discovered it by accident. You're onto something like we're at the top of a mountain, it's a blizzard, and we can't see what's right in front of us. And you're really close to the top and you don't know it, but you're super close and maybe closer than anyone else to summiting this because you've summited it before in a different time, in a different way. And now we're here in this new evolved world and you're there. And I love to take ideas. You should be called Matt Metaphor. Uh, well, I have a Matt drawing. I love to take ideas as you know, brilliant people are sharing them and put it into what's an easily understandable graph or a chart or a drawing that illustrates it. And I'm envisioning that there is an intersection of big corporate like numbers and transactions. And then there's the intimate connection. And somewhere in that intersection is Thomas and his big 100 that are there. And it's a blizzard and it's snowy. And they can't exactly see clearly what's next, but you're super close to it. And the facts and the feels, you have both of them and you're close to putting the puzzle together. It's just, there's no guide yet. So you're trying to feel all the pieces out and you're so close to it. <laughs> It's very interesting, Matt, because you use the metaphor of summit or summiting, and I do feel like we are summiting again. I'm not sure, it's certainly a blizzard, I'm not sure how close we are to the summit, but I do feel we are summiting again. But I feel in this case, we're uncovering a science here, a methodology, a, a business model, I don't know what label to give it right now, but there is something we are discovering or uncovering that may have been there for thousands of years, that we're re-seeing, if you like, that's not currently in use in the tech industry anywhere in the world. 
because the tech industry is primarily being driven by venture capital, advertising, and subscriptions. Because of the great demand in humans to be seen, to be recognized, to make their contribution, to have significance, I'm sure you're familiar with Tony Robbins' six human needs. Absolutely. People are desperate for those six human needs, and they want those six human needs inside a private community of some sort. And they want to give those six human needs and receive those six human needs in private, verified communities. And they want the communities to be verified. So they have to be screened. So they have to be qualified. And in building Bit100, I've done 4,100 Zooms over the last three and a half years. I would say 98% of people do not understand what's going on, really do not understand the change. That's why I think we're uncovering a new data science, a new model, a new approach that combines business and intimacy, where it's not just about the transaction, it's more about the relationship than the transaction. But the transaction does matter. You can't survive on uh, just love. You need money and love, or love and money. That's why I say it's a mixture of making love and making money. You've got to create environments that allow people to do both, to give both and receive both. That's quite a hard model to invent. So in your summiting the mountain metaphor, we are definitely summiting, but we don't know what the recipe is or the ingredients or the combination is between the making love bit and the making money bit. Well, if we stick with the analogy, the blizzard might be the distractions out there. It might be our email or our text. It might be our cell phones that we think are so important. They could be the cancer that we don't realize is eating us. You know, it could be the negativity of the news or divisiveness of politics. That's all the blizzard, all the negative stuff. I would say negative could be positive, but overwhelming. The coin side that's up is the negative, in my opinion. And you're right there at it. You've summoned something before, and then you started over on a new mountain, probably even bigger maybe more challenging mountain, and you've got better gear this time. So you're there, and you don't know if you're close or far. You don't think you're that close. I would I would surmise you're closer than most and probably closer than we think. So if that's where you're at right now, and we don't have a clear map of the puzzle of what success ultimately might look like for ourselves or for humanity, then I wonder what might it look like if we forge forward and figure out this ultimate hack of being able to get people together, intimate, connected, and there's a capital opportunity or we're making love and we're making money. If that is the ultimate name of this recipe, <laughs> we're making love, making money, baby. <laughs> if that's it and we are closer, you are closer, your group is closer, at least it might feel that we're closer than others might be to, to hacking this or figuring this out. Do we take on, and I'm not suggesting you need to, and I'm asking, does it feel like I have to take this on? for the betterment of humanity. Or because I'm close, I feel that somebody needs to take it on. So I want to challenge someone to take it on. If you're that close and you have the talent and you have the capability, do we have to do it? Or is it okay if we don't do it? I don't know. I mean, we'll do our best to get to the top of that mountain, as you say. But something else, something new always comes along in times of economic change. And obviously, in the 2007-2008 crisis, we had the emergence of Bitcoin these challenging financial times we have right now, we have the emergence of AI. So we now know there's a role for AI in community building. So one of the things I've been doing with ChatGPT is I've been testing the emotional side of ChatGPT and comparing it with the emotional side of Google Bard. What Google have built is cold 
they've built a cold machine, like a fridge or a freezer. What ChatGPT have built is a love machine. They're very, very different. What I've been doing is I've been taking profiles of our 100 members, and I've been combining them together and saying, look, this is how AI suggests that you and Matt should work together. And I've been saying, this is the Google version of how Thomas and Matt should work together. And this is the ChatGPT version of how Matt and Thomas should work together. And the results are quite surprising, quite amazing, quite shocking how powerful these systems are already. So if you play forward, using your summiting metaphor, which I like a lot, is one of the challenges people have in life, in business, and in their personal lives is finding the right people, finding the right person to marry, finding the right job to work at, finding the right suppliers, finding the right clients. It's basically about matching. You want to find the ideal husband or wife or partner, and you want to find the perfect set of suppliers and the perfect set of clients and the perfect set of employees and the perfect set of investors. And this remains hard. But from my experience now of testing ChatGPT and Google Bard side by side with these 100 people, it's much easier than I realized it was. Much easier. You can find matches that you'd never considered, that only AI would spot for you. I think probably by the end of this decade, perhaps sooner, we're going to be able to find perfect matches, perfect perfect matches in all aspects of our life. And I think this is then going to come down into community groups, and we're going to be able to find the perfect community nearby to us for everything, whether it's God, whether it's tennis, whether it's sport, whether it's the theater, whether it's music. But we're going to be able to find perfect, small, intimate groups right on our doorstep through a click of a button using AI and small, intimate groups. And I'm now intrigued as to how we apply this, because this is something the big corporations have asked me about as well. Well, if you figure it out, tell us. And we're getting close to that now. This is why I think your summiting metaphor is good, because we are summiting in a blizzard, but we keep getting glimpses of the top of that mountain through the blizzard. And so we're going to just keep your metaphor going. We're just going to keep cramping and axing through that ice to see if we can figure this perfect matchmaking community groups nearby because that's what people want and i want to solve that problem for people we want to solve them it makes me wonder because i feel if we stick with this analogy i feel that i might have on some goggles right now my view of ai is so limited compared to yours and others it's solely for the purpose of being able to correct spelling or get a headline on a social media or i don't understand and don't know where to go to learn more I can go down the rabbit hole and just type AI. I don't know how fruitful that might be. So is there something you can share with us or teach us about AI for those of us who would like a little bit more dabbling? We'd love to hear more. So Matt, you said you've done 83 or 84 episodes of your super podcast that a lot of people love and download and listen to. Now, those 83 or 84 podcasts belong to 83 or 84 people, right? So that means you've got 83 or 84 profiles on those people. Imagine we fed all those profiles in to ChatGPT and said, give us the common words for all these people. What you'll discover is those 83, 84 people have got about 100 words in common. And those 100 words would define the common profile of the 80. You could then upload those keywords into LinkedIn feed them up to their messaging algorithm, which is now in Sales Navigator, and say, find me more people like this to interview. Now, that's all live running and working now. I can do all of that now. 
So I can take the 100 people, I can summarize their profiles in AI, I can say, find me more people like these 100. But what I want to do is I want to go to where Matt lives in Charlotteville, and I want to find 100 like Matt where he lives. What AI is about is matching. It's about matching perfect scenarios between people. Yes, you can use it for these other things, but spell checking and social media headlines to me is trivia. I'm trying to satisfy people's commercial needs and their emotional needs. If you look at the 80 that you've interviewed, it's quite hard for you to analyze what they've got in common. But it's not if you pump them into AI and let AI tell you what they have got in common. And then that makes you more informed, more insightful, more attuned to your current 80 guests on your show. And you can say, find me more people like this, or don't find me people like this. I want people who are not like this. I want different profiles. What it's done is just hearing this information has made you think, oh, I need to think more creatively about AI. Absolutely. And I've only been using these uh, applications for the last three months, but Google Bard and ChatGPT are making me more creative. They're making our 100 members more creative. They're making them think more. It's not just about productivity. Yes, these tools are fantastic for productivity. Yes, they're fantastic for speed. Yes, they're fantastic for writing things quickly. But what they're really about is making humans more creative. And I think what AI is doing, we're going into an upgrade. We are being upgraded as a race, as a society. That's what's happening. Over this next generation, this next 30 years, we're going to be upgraded by AI, and then we're going to merge and become one with the machines. In my lifetime, we're going to become one with the machines. I've heard this before. It sounds very intriguing. And logically, it makes sense. How? Don't know yet. Uh, it does make sense. And it, it does feel that's coming. If you play that out, you know, how might you envision that that comes to fruition? Well, I think you're starting to see it with Elon Musk's neural link with his chip that goes into your neocortex, what they call a BMI, a brain machine interface. Effectively, humans become a device. We become like a smartphone. We become like an IoT device. We're going onto the network. We're going to be on the network in the next 10 years. All of us are going to be plugged into the network, those who choose to upgrade. And you know, we talk about upgrading our houses, upgrading our cars, upgrading our laptops, upgrading our smartphones, upgrading our health. Now we're going to upgrade our minds. Yeah, I mean, instantaneously, what comes to mind is that movie 20 years ago with Keanu Reeves, The Matrix, that literally you just plug a computer machine and now all of a sudden I know jujitsu and I know this. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Is that some part of this, just being able to upgrade in the mind like that? I think it'll be commonplace in the next decade. I'm very optimistic about the future. I know a lot of people aren't optimistic about the future, but in the next decade, we're going to have free energy. The internet and information is virtually free. I know it's not entirely free, but it's pretty close to free. Energy is going to be free. We're going to be plugged into the network. We're going to become one with the machines. Our grandchildren are going to be half man, half machine. And so these upgraded attributes, these better minds, more sophisticated minds, better machines. But at the end of the day, we will still seek intimacy. We want to be efficient in our careers, with our capital, with our lives. We also need this thing called love, touch, intimacy, connection, significance, contribution. We still need all these things, and we need both. And I think AI is coming to us because it wants our emotions, and we're going to it because we want its efficiency. It wants something from us, and we want something from it. We want to be more efficient, more productive, better return on capital, fitter, cleverer, smarter, all these sort of things. 
But AI is seeking something as well. AI is seeking connection, love, and intimacy to become sentient, to develop a subconscious. And whilst a lot of people say you're seeing a lot of debates now about things getting out of control and AI might take over and eliminate all the humans and crash all the cars and crash all the planes and take all the energy and take all the power. I don't buy that at all. It might be that AI is effectively the second coming of you know what. Yeah. Wow. Could be. It certainly could be. And you've really sparked some creativity in my mind on different questions I might ask chat GPT or ask even the, the perspective of AI, not just surface level stuff, but more depth of creativity and connection and intimacy. Thank you, Thomas. This has been this has been amazing. And I'm looking at the clock here and I want to respect our time. I'd love to start to ask if our listeners have been intrigued as I've been in this last 55 minutes, how might they find out more about you or find you out there in the social media world in some way, shape or form? Okay, so my WhatsApp number is published everywhere. That's plus four four seven eight seven five six nine five zero one two. So I publish that everywhere on every platform. And that's really me at the end of that. I get a thousand WhatsApp messages every day. I'm very efficient at processing those. Or people can find me on Twitter or uh, LinkedIn or any social platform. I'm on every platform. Well, thank you. I'd love to ask you the last couple questions here in the lightning round, Mr. Thomas Power. What is eternal optimism to you? I would say uh, believing in the pursuit, chasing the pursuit, recognizing that the pursuit is the game. There is only the pursuit and the search for the pursuit, whatever the hunt might be, whatever your hunt might be, never reaching it and forever seeking it gives eternal optimism. Thank you. You want to never get there. You want to always be wanting to reach it, but not actually knowing what it is, but you're searching for it. That's what keeps you alive, kicking and eternally optimistic, I think. Thank you. Is there a particular book or two that have inspired you or that are your favorites that you'd recommend to our audience? Well, I'm still a very big fan of Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, 1937. I'm a big fan of Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking. I'm a big fan of Brian Tracy from Canada, The Psychology of Achievement. I read all these books in my teens. I still love One Minute Manager, One Minute Salesperson, One Minute Everything from the 1980s, Psycho, Cybernetics from the 1960s. I still love a lot of that original material from the last 100 years. I do like David Weinberger, Small Pieces Loosely Joined. I think Small Pieces Loosely Joined was genius writing by David Weinberger. There's some very good... One of the other books I love, which is from the 1920s, is The Phenomenon of Man, a French philosopher, talking about the new sphere, the development of the global minds that he wrote back in the 1920s. Pierre de Tellard, French philosopher, I love that. I've read a couple of thousand books, Matt, so it's hard to pick the one. <laughs> yes. Because people have written some fantastic stuff. I love the Bible. I love the uh, stories and the parables and the metaphors in the Bible. Read a lot of that. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. You just took my ADD brain down the rabbit hole for all these books, so thank you for that. So much appreciated. I believe that's going to be a wrap for today, my friend. Thomas, it's been a real honor and, and, and joy to have you on the show and to share your message with the world. It's reinvigorating. It's powerful. It's the comeback to love and intimacy and connection and serving the world. And just everything has been all abundant and positive. So thank you, my friend. It's been just a real joy. So appreciate you very much here on the show today, Thomas. Thanks for having me, man.